Well, Father, um, we come before you now, Lord, and we humble ourselves, Lord, in your sight, and we recognize our great desperate need of you, Lord. Um, Father, you give us so many things in this life to remind us of our desperate need of of you and of, of your son, Jesus. Lord, our health, the transient nature of our lives, Lord, the frailty of our humanity, Lord, um, the chaos in the world all around us, the, um, the things that we see that are coming on this world, the moral collapse of American culture. You give us sirens, Lord, all around us to remind us to put our faith in you, to walk closely with you, to have a tight walk with the Lord and to walk with you in the light as you are in the light. And so, God, we pray you produce greater holiness in us, greater reverence and fear. Lord, help us to be acquainted with our alien status in this world, that we are but pilgrims just passing through a strange land. Lord, we long for the day that we will go to a country and a home and to go to a place whose city builder is God. And uh, Father, we just pray, God, that you would bless us now, bless our church service. We know that you're doing great and mighty things here, Lord. We pray that you would just bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, um, got a really interesting email yesterday. It was one of those emails that was, uh, I was just, in, I'll tell you what happened, just because I want to let you in on this. But... Uh, I had emailed uh, James White uh, about a month ago, huh? um, telling him that I want to do a conference with him here in Texas, and uh, I didn't hear from them. And I thought, okay, well, it's James White. You know, he's hard to get. <laughs> so James White emailed me last night, and he says, uh, "Hey, I appreciate uh, the invitation and blah blah blah." And he said, um, uh, "He said uh, speaking uh, at that time would be quite impossible for me." said, I will be in Africa again next year. This time, you know, he just got back from South Africa. You know about it, Chris. You, you keep up with the DL. And I thought, okay, well, there goes that. You know, I tried. I want to do a conference with Tom Pennington and James White. And uh, <clears throat> and uh, and I thought, okay, so I emailed him back. So, yeah, no problem. You know, God bless you. I know you're busy. <laughs> you know? And then five minutes later, he emails me back. He goes, sorry, what I meant to say was it is quite possible. <laughs> so he's like, um, I'm busy, but I really like the idea, and I want to do it. So, Lord willing, next year, look forward to that. Uh, that would be great. So, <clears throat> I guess it's all about getting the information right. <laughs> I'm trying to, how do I tie this into my Sunday school lesson right now? Uh, we're studying, again, you know, the doctrine of Christ. And we've been looking at Christology, and today I want to look at uh, the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ, because we looked at his humanity and we've already asked the question, why was it important for Jesus to be a human, right? So, so we believe that, that uh, within the one person of Christ, there exists simultaneously both a human nature and a divine nature. And what theologians have said throughout the history of the church, going all the way back to even prior to the Council of Nicaea 
and 3.25 is that Jesus uh, is fully human and that Jesus is fully God simultaneously and that these two natures, they, can, they, they, they exist alongside of each other. They do not... Um, they do not blend together, right, and become some sort of third nature, right? Human and divine came together and gave birth to some third alternative nature. No, he retains both natures simultaneously. And this is, remember, we looked at this word, the uh, hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Union. Yeah. I know that's a famous rap song, right? Hypostatic union. So, um, hypostatic, just meaning two natures, hupo and uh, stasis, right? Nature, stasis is the Greek word, and hupo meaning dual or two. So, two natures is how the church has conceived of this. And we talked already about his human nature and how that Jesus as a man identifies with us. It is important for him to be a man so that he can live a perfect life in our stead in our place, live the life that we couldn't live so that he can be the real and genuine, true second Adam who was a man and who was tempted and failed. Jesus was tempted and succeeded. He resisted temptation. And we saw that Jesus as the second Adam is greater than the first Adam in, by virtue of the fact that the, the environment of his temptation which was much more hostile. Adam was tempted by a piece of fruit. And he was tempted in a garden and in a very Edenic condition, a paradise. Whereas Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. In Mark chapter 1, I think it's verse uh, 13, but Mark points out that uh, he was tempted among the wild beasts. So there is Jesus under extremely hostile conditions, being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was fasting. So he was in a weak state. And so he is not just another Adam per se, but he is better than the second Adam. And he's, his, 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 he succeeds where Adam fails, and he succeeds in a, in a vastly superior way. He represents his humanity in a more superior way. Um, but now we come to the question of his deity, and I'm asking the, the quick questions here. Uh, why is it important that Jesus is divine? Why is, what is the necessity of his deity. Why is his deity necessary? Take away the sins of the world. Explain that more. I mean, can a human take away the sin of the world? Only God can forgive us of our sins. Okay, that's very good. Yeah. So, okay, so forgiveness, right? Uh, so forgiveness of sins, right, is, is a big one. Uh, forgiveness of sins, that is a big one. Uh, turn to uh, Mark chapter 2, uh, just to prove that. I mean, that is a that is a accepted worldview, Jewish worldview. And when Jesus came, everybody understood that, right? I mean, it wasn't, um, it wasn't really a mystery. Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Right? Because he told the paralytic man that his sins were forgiven, right? And it says, it says um, in verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. 
the position that all humanity is placed in at one point or another with reference to Christ. At some point, at one point, every human being on earth will be put in this place of verse 6. Reasoning and thinking within yourself, what do I make of Jesus Christ? Verse 7. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Is that what it says? God alone. Right? That's emphatic, by the way. It's like, who can forgive sins except God? That was enough. God alone. (laughs) Right? Making it very clear that in their mind, forgiveness of sins is only something God is capable of doing. And so, yes, the deity of Christ means that he is able to forgive our sins. Anything else? Maybe pursue this a little bit further in terms of our sin. How does he deal with our sin? What does he do with it? Yes, ma'am. Um, at the cross, he was blameless, and only someone that is righteous could actually do that. You right. You can't sin with sin. It has to be someone that's righteous, that's holy, that has no sin on that's actually, that's actually a very interesting point. If you turn to Philippians chapter 3, I hadn't thought about that, but turn to Philippians chapter 3, it just th- makes me, what she just said makes me think of this passage, right? Um, where the Apostle Paul says very plainly, right? He doesn't, um, he doesn't want a righteousness of his own derived from the law. Look at uh, Philippians 3, 9. He says, but that I may be found... In him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Jesus gives us access to the very righteousness of God because he himself is as righteous as God. He is God. Um, That's a good point. But I'm thinking here specifically of the doctrine of Propitiation. Right? What does propitiation mean? To take away the wrath of God. Right? Uh, any any uh, other definition of that? Absorbing it. To absorb the wrath of God. That's very good. Satisfaction is really the word I was looking because what this what propitiation indicates is number one, that God is angry, so there is wrath, right? The old Scottish Reformed preachers would say, the wrath of God, (laughs) right? The wrath of God, and because the wrath of God is just, it is on the basis of his justice and his holiness, then the wrath of God, the anger of God, has to be satisfied, which satisfaction means that it is that that his justice, excuse me, his justice is satisfied. So the wrath of God calls for justice. That's what it is. The wrath of God calls for justice, right? When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, God was angry, furious, filled with righteous indignation. And then when the prophet uh, Nathan approached him and exposed his sin and confronted him about his sin. He repented of his sin and he said, he said, and, your, and he told him that, he, that his sins were forgiven and that God had heard him. Right? So that's it. 
<laughs> right? So all a person needs to do is just say a little prayer and that's it, it's over. Well, we know that it's not that. We know it's genuine repentance, a genuine turning away from sin. The question is, okay, if you, if you just, you know, use David as an example, what if you're Uriah's dad? And you say, wait a minute. I know this is the king of Israel, but he just murdered my son in order to sleep with his wife. Who's going to pay for that? Who is going to satisfy the anger of Uriah's father? Who is going to meet the justice that what his heart is crying out for? And so the justice of all of these sins were paid for by Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Make this explicit, right? Either that or God is just going to punish sin right there on the spot. And David incinerated at that very moment, right? But thank God he did not do that, right? But was gracious. Uh, Romans chapter 3. Um, boy, beginning in verse 23 so that we all feel at home in this text. For all have sinned. There we go. Feel at home now? <laughs> For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, watch this, He passed over sins previously committed. He didn't punish them. Uh, under the old covenant. He decided not to do that. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. In other words, so that he would be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, this is how God remains holy. This is how Uriah's dad cannot say, where are you, God? Deal with this injustice, or you are an unjust God. So what, what Paul is saying is, no, God did deal with it, but he dealt with it at the present time. The fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4, 4, at the fullness of the time, when the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God was at hand, Christ Jesus came and he said, repent and believe in the gospel. Why? Because he was about to make propitiation for the sin of the world. That's why. And so propitiation means to absorb the wrath of God, to remove the wrath of God, but who can appease God whose wrath is infinite unless you are as infinite as God, right? If Jesus was a mere man, the wrath of God would have consumed him, and he would never have been able to drink the cup that was given to him to drink. So he had to be God for that reason. Um, turn with me to John chapter 4. So not only, not only is he, it, was it necessary for him to be God because, of the, because he had the power to forgive sins, because he had the power to remove the wrath of God from us and absorb the punishment for our sin, but he is also, he, he also needs to be God in order to fully reveal God. So for the purpose of revelation, Another reason why he had to be God. For the purpose of revelation. Revelation. Anyway. Um, 14.9, right? 
says, Philip, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Nobody questions that the Father is God, right? Um, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see that? So what Jesus is saying there basically is that in Christ, in the incarnate Son of God, you have a full revelation, full disclosure of who God is. Exhaustive, full disclosure. Anything you want to know about who God is, look to Christ. He is no, uh, maybe, maybe stay in John. John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. Right? Um, huge verse, huge verse. The verse we should all memorize. Right? Oh, no. I, anyway, that means I should probably be able to recite it from memory, right? <laughs> okay, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has explained him. So in other words, what does that mean? To be at the bosom of the Father means literally to be in the most inner intimate parts of God, right? So the Son, the only, here he is referred to as the only begotten God or the one-of-a-kind God, which is a reference to Jesus. This is very powerful here, very, very powerful um, passage, right? He is in the bosom of the Father. He is as intimate as you can be with the Father. And because of that, he is able to fully explain him to us. It's not difficult for Jesus to explain the Father to us because he's one with him. He's in the most intimate part of the Father. Any questions so far? Any questions so far? Yes, sir? I, mean, I was thinking maybe another aspect of the necessity of deity in Christ is so that God most assuredly receives the glory for salvation, right? So God needs to be the one providing the sacrifice so that he gets all of the right. all of the glory. It's good. Right. Amen. That's a great that's a great point. Can you think of a verse that goes along with that? Well, I thought you might ask that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, mean, put, I just thought of the fact that sorry, God will share glory with another, you know, and that we'll be worshiping God and the Lamb in heaven, you know, so that all worship is going to Christ. Right. You know? And that would ensure that for him to be the one to actually come and, and obtain redemption rather than just having a man or David or, you know, man getting some sort of credit for that. But God himself did it. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. It's like Jesus says, you know, something greater than Solomon, Jonah, you know, we could say anybody, David, Moses, greater than the temple. Someone greater is here, you know. Carlos, you had a question? Well, I just wanted to add on to that. He brought it to my mind. Um, was it two weeks ago you were talking about the covenant? The one-way covenant, all God, <laughs> and even the salvation, the whole thing, bringing you to Christ. And uh, this, you know, God saved you for himself, by himself, from himself. Yeah, amen. Way, you know? Amen. Just wanted to throw that out there. That's good. That's good. But now, um, <clears throat> so then to ask the question now, let's get into the biblical data, right? Because there are a couple of terms that make it, there's a couple of terms and then there's a couple of ways in which the authors of the New Testament teach the deity of Christ. And so the very first one, right, uh, let's say you're talking to a Jehovah Witness, let's say you're talking to a Muslim, 
Let's say you're talking to anybody, a Unitarian, and they ask you, where does the Bible say that Jesus is God? Right? Where does it call Jesus God? Right? So the very first thing is we have to ask the question, where does the Greek word theos, this very famous word, where does the Greek word theos, where does this appear? Right? You know, in the manuscripts, when you read, like, when you look at the Greek manuscripts, okay, a lot of times they would abbreviate this, and sometimes all you would have is the first letter, you know, something like that. It would be like a, um, it would be an abbreviation of the sacred name. They wouldn't even want to write the name God. The writers of the manuscript, they had so much reverence for the word God, they wouldn't even want to write the whole name. <laughs> isn't that glorious? I mean, isn't that convicting? <laughs> so, God, so, so where in the Bible is Jesus called God? Well, I already gave you one, and it's here in John 1.18, right? The only begotten God. But, of course, this has a context. So, where, does anybody's Bible read something different, by the way? Not only begotten God, but maybe only begotten Son? Yes, sir? You got King Jimmy? We'll let that slide. Yeah, so the King James is working off of different, um, different manuscript tradition. You know, the problem is, is that this verse, verse 18, is such an ancient manuscript, okay, uh, and it's by textual critics, those that study manuscripts, they would say this is original because, because, primarily because no one, no one would dare change the concept of only begotten son to only begotten God. No one would do that, you know what I mean, to make that kind of scribal amendation. So what they would probably do, though, is that they would probably go from God to Son to try to smooth it out. And that's what I think the, the, the manuscripts that the King James used did. That's how you explain the difference. But I definitely think that this papyri right here, this ancient manuscript, uh, is the harder reading and therefore, I think it's the original reading. But um, anyway, so that's important, you know what I mean? Because here you have a huge text identifying Jesus directly as God. And if you would, this is what they would call in exegesis, since you guys are, I know this is a burning issue for everybody. This is what exegetes would call an inclusio, meaning that the text begins with a, with a certain theme, namely... Uh, the, the Godhood, let's say, of the Word. And that's in verse 1. And then it ends with the same theme, the Godhood of the Son. Uh, okay, something like that, okay? Look at verse 1, right? So it begins with the same theme. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God has, who's in the bosom of the Father, he's explained him. You see that? How he works back to his introductory theme of verse 1. And that's how he finishes his introductory statement, which verses 1 through 18 are known uh, among John's, you know, Johannine theologians, theologians that study John, you read any commentary, what they'll tell you is that verses 1 to 18 is the prologue of John. What is a prologue? An introduction. 
So the introduction to the Gospel of John, verses 1 to 18, begins and ends with the idea that Jesus is God. Remarkable, remarkable, ingenious, the way that he does this, especially if you look at it in the Greek text. It's even more impressive. But anyway, so you guys see that there, right? Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. Now we know from verse 14 that the Word is Christ. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you string those verses together, it's very obvious there that the Greek word theos is being used of Jesus Christ over and over again. Right? Amazing. Amazing. Um, can you guys think, you know, I want to make this easy for you guys. Uh, can you guys think of a passage that specifically identifies Jesus as God and uses the word God? Anyone? Shakita, I see that hand. I see that hand. Quoted directly, but it's something about God not being robbery. I know it, but I can't. And I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying, right? Yeah, he didn't think equality with God something to be grasped, right? So, but there, but there, it's in, it's 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 implicit. It implies his deity. It's actually a very good deity text. Because it implies that Jesus already had equality with God. So when he took on flesh, that is not what he was groping for. <laughs> right? The purpose of his incarnation was not to show off his deity. It was to humble himself. Right? Any other verse? I saw somebody else. Yes, Carlos? I, I, I was just, first thing came to mind was John 1.1. That's the one we just looked at. Oh, okay. Yeah. Any other verse? Yes, sir. Colossians 1.14. Read it for us. What is that? Colossians? I, For he, de he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And we're talking about the Son, in whom we have redemption um, and forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's definitely a deity passage because, because there he is not saying that he is in the image of God, right? He's saying Jesus is the image of God. Very, very very different, but I'm looking for texts that specifically identify Jesus as God. Uh, Terry? I don't know if this is it, but in John 20, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Correct. That's, that's a perfect deity passage. That's right. Because here's what we're going to, before I get to everybody else, Terry, that's a good one. Because we have to ask the question, how do, what do we make of that? What do we make of that? Is John... You know, like the Jehovah Witness would say, oh, he's just, he's just exasperated. So he's just, oh, my Lord and my God. Almost like blasphemy. I mean, you know what I mean? He's just kind of like, it's a figure of speech. No, 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 no. Jews don't use the word God flippantly. <laughs> you know, it's just unthinkable that John, who is a pious man, would just flippantly use God's name like that. No, no, no. He, uh, he called Jesus my Lord. Kurios, and then he called him my God, Theos. So there's no way around that. The only thing you could say with that, okay, well, he made a mistake. He shouldn't have done that, right? He was mistaken. I mean, the problem was if he's mistaken, what's the problem with that? 
Jesus did not correct him, right? But received the worship. It's a big problem. Uh, John, I think, was next. Uh, Titus 2.13 and Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Well, don't take them all. Just do uh, <laughs> Titus 2. Do, <laughs> read Titus 2.13. That's a good one. That's a good one. Titus 2.13. A lot of people don't think of this one, uh, of this one here. What, uh, where Jesus calls himself I am, before Abraham. Yeah, the uh, I am state, but I'm looking specifically for the Greek word theos. Oh, okay. Titus 2.13 says, yes, sir. looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's right. The great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's right. And then, uh, Marshall? Yeah, 1 John 1, 5, 5, 1. First John 5, 1. Yeah, read that one. Because I don't even think Rudum hit that Everyone one. Everyone who believes in Jesus is the Christ. He was born of God. Close. Close. I, that's close. But he, it's, it, that verse is not identifying him specifically as God. Right? That's saying, look, if you believe in Jesus, that means that you have been born again before believing in Jesus. Very interesting. We'll get to that in soteriology, but that uh, 1 John chapter 1, actually 1 John, the theologian of eternal life and the, the, the theologian of the new birth, right? Being born again, makes it very clear that faith, or that, uh, sorry, the new birth precedes faith. Okay? So a lot of people don't know that. They think being born again is synonymous with salvation in every sense it is not what john is saying is that the reason you believe is because god has caused you to be born again being born again is not something you do it's something that happens to you okay that's a sex saying a baby gave birth to itself no okay first the baby has to be given birth to and then he cries or whatever else he does right uh Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, Colossians 2, 8 and 9. Colossians 2, 8 and 9. Read that, read that for us. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's a good passage, right? That's a good passage, and, and that's a deity passage, but it doesn't call him God. You know, I just want to saturate your minds with this the correction of this misconception that the New Testament does not clearly identify Jesus as God, doesn't call him Theos. I've had people tell me that. Nowhere does it say there. Yes, it does, over and over and over again. Trisha, I better answer. You're my wife, so I better. Well, I was going to say, um, um, Acts 7, 59 through 60, when Stephen was being stoned and then he called out. Jesus, please receive my spirit. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good passage. <laughs> How do I do this? This is my wife. I got to do this nice, you know. I know, but it's not saying, but I, but, but I mean, it's showing that he is in heaven and he's the one that is able to receive his spirit. Sure. He's calling the Lord. That's right. It's a deity passage, there's no question. Uh, Mike? First chapter, Genesis 26. Uh-huh. Right here it says, then God said, let us, 
according to our likeness and let them rule for the fish and yeah. That's interesting. That's a different word. It's a Hebrew word, Elohim. But, but, but yeah, Jesus is definitely... I actually do have an Old Testament text that identifies Jesus as God directly. But um, let me give you guys another one. Uh, John, you mentioned First, uh, Second Peter, right? Look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Right? Not usually... If I tell people, show me a deity passage, you know, a lot of folks won't turn to first, uh, Second Peter 1, 1. Right? That's a clear one. Somebody want to read that? Chris, you want to read that? You're there, I see it. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, theos. God and Savior. Theos, hasoter. God and Savior. Amazing. Right? I have some other ones. Hey, anybody else? Amanda? Um, Amanda... I don't know. She she sticks to the rules. <laughs> I was thinking of um, Matthew 16, where um, Christ is speaking to the disciples, who, who am I really? What do you, who do you say that I am? You know, right? and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, Peter directly, you know, identifies yeah. him as, as God right there. The Son of so, God, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Definitely. That a de- was the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, yeah. So. That's right. No, that's a, good, that's a good deity passage right there. Yes, sir? What was she quoting? Uh, that is a Matthew 16, I think. What is that, verse 18? Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. 16. What's that? Isaiah 9, 6. Yeah, read that for us. Yeah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God, El Gabor. That is what that phrase means, El Gabor, Mighty God in Hebrew. Uh, Tony. Hebrews Excellent. <laughs> we were just in Hebrews. Okay, read that. So two times there. Verse eight and verse nine. Your throne, O God, right? So clear of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. And this is God speaking, right? At least in verse 9. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So that's remarkable. That's a remarkable deity passage. I know people they try to work around that, but read a good commentary on it. Miriam? Um, Revelation 1a, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Correct. And, and that's what I was, and, was going to say, too, yeah. is that one. But, but if you go further, look at, look at Revelation 1, 17. Were you going to say this one, Mary? Revelation. No, I was going to say, because um, at the end of Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for that what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Correct. the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Right, so you have to put those two together. Revelation 1, 8, and Revelation twenty two thirteen. And then if you look at verse 17, look what it says. It says... Um, of what? Revelation... Revelation 1. Okay. It says, do not be afraid. I, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So when did, when did God die? When did God die? 
That's right. And I don't even personally like the language God died. Right? Because the deity of Jesus Christ did not die. Right? So I mean, me personally, I will never pray, thank you God for dying for me. You know what I mean? I'll let you guys chew that. That'll creep up on you around lunchtime. <clears throat> so, yes, sir. Maybe another interesting one on that note would be like Acts twenty twenty eight. Right. It's kind of pretty Christologically. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, read that. Okay. Uh, Acts twenty twenty eight says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So... God purchased the church with his blood. It has to refer to Christ. It cannot refer to the Father. That would be the heresy that we talked about, remember? The Father does not die for us. How many worship leaders have you heard, you know? Father, we thank you for going to the cross. Huh? (laughs) Father did not go to the cross. You know what I mean? I think this is why Jesus tells us when you pray... Pray like this. Pray in my name. Pray to the Father in my name. What is Jesus doing? Is, it, is he just trying to make it hard for us to pray? Right? Or is there a reason why he's telling us to pray to the Father in his name? Right? Because he wants us to have a proper Trinitarian worldview. We don't mix and mash and confuse the members of the Trinity. But we always have the members of the Trinity distinct in our mind. We commune with the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Those types of Trinitarian concepts must be there. Okay? Yes, sir? Apart from the work of Christ, you can't communicate. You can't. You have a relationship with God. So only by means through Christ can you have that communication and relationship with Amen. God. Amen. Amen. Go directly to Him, but right. He's not going to hear you. Right. So even, the, even praying in the name of the Son, it just reminds us of the Gospel. You know, that the only reason I'm able to pray to God is because of the merits of the Son. What He did, it's through Him. He's my mediator. Yes, John? Uh, another passage is uh, Romans 9, 5. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a punctuation issue with that one. Yeah, I know. And I don't like the NASB translation. I Read it for us. Let's get mad at the uh, NAS for a minute. The NAS, the way it punctuated is, whose are the fathers uh, and whom is the Christ according to the flesh, pause, comma, who is overall, comma, God bless forever, amen. Uh, actually, I think it's the New King James yeah. that translated um, who is overall God, comma, bless forever. You got the, you got the, uh, you got uh, Romans 9, 5, Tony? You got King Jimmy there, right? All right, let's see what King Jimmy has to say. I better look at the Greek text to see what that has to say. Who's all the fathers and of whom has concerned the flesh? I mean, that's way more explicit, you know what I mean? Maybe we should be King James only. (laughs) Jonathan's like, no! (laughs) I just got out of that! (laughs) That's right. Hey, listen, I love the King James Bible, okay? Don't get me wrong. I used the King James Bible for probably 10 years. I love the King James Bible, but... um, um, the one from whom uh, yeah those are good texts you guys let's move on to the next Christo- Christological title that, that gives us the deity of Christ 
another argument. So that's good. I feel like y'all can do really good right now against a Jehovah Witness that knocks at your door or something like that. I don't mean to harp on the Jehovah Witnesses, but hey, let's face it. I mean, they do attack our theology of the deity of Christ. So, I mean, just being honest, right? So the other one would be the, uh, the Greek word kurios, and that is kurios, right? So this Greek word means Lord, Lord, where Jesus is called Lord. And the reason that this is significant is because in the Old Testament, you have, you have the Greek word Yahweh oftentimes translated by the Septuagint as Lord. Everybody get that? So you have the Hebrew Bible using the word, you know, Yahweh. That's not the book of Hebrews. That's the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Okay? So, Old Testament. And then you have the translation known as the Septuagint. How many of you have seen that abbreviation before when you're reading something? Yeah. Right? So, what is that numerical, Roman numeral stand for? 70. 70. What does 70 mean? The 70, uh, 70 elders who translated it. So 70 scholars or bishops that translated the Hebrew into the Greek. Into the Greek. That's right. And so, they, so the, this is the Greek Old Testament. Old Testament. Okay. The authors of the New Testament, they quote the Septuagint readily. That's why when people tell you, Oh, but that's a translation, right, of the Bible. How can you trust the Bible? Well, oh, that's a translation. It's been translated so many times. How can you trust it? all of that? So well, there's nothing wrong with a good translation. Jesus used a translation. People are like, huh? What translation? Well, Jesus didn't use the King James or anything, but Jesus used a translation. People usually look at you, you know, like, what are you talking about? Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. It just shows his confidence in the perspicuity of Scripture. It shows his confidence that a good translation is fully reliable and can give you the Word of God, right? That's what it shows me. So in the, old, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, you have the word Yahweh. And in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, you have the word uh, Kurios, Kurios, which is used of Yahweh. And so in the New Testament, when you have Kurios being associated with Christ, right, with Christ, they are taking the divine title, the divine name of God, Yahweh, and using it and, and attributing it to Christ which is absolutely blasphemous, right? Unless he is God. Yeah. So you have tons of passages that, 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 that use this, uh, this line of, of, of reasoning. You have um, oh, Revelation 19, 16 is probably the best of all, right? right? And, and his robe and on his thigh he had the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Kurios, Kurios. He is the Kurios Kurios. He is the Lord of Lords. Um, just over and over you have 
many of these Theos passages also say Lord and God. So we saw that. He's also called Lord and God. So this is, this is a way of saying, referring to Jesus as absolutely divine. You know, there's no way. Now, I want to give you a couple other ones, though. Some other, some other um, passages, maybe of a different kind. And that is any time where Jesus is made to be equal with God himself. So apart from just the language, the terminology itself, the, the vocabulary rather, there is other ways that they do this. Okay, so turn to uh, Matthew 11. Matthew 11. And look at verse 25. Verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25. Right. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That's you and me. We are infants. Uh, We're actually going to... So interesting, right? The providence of God. We're actually looking at where does this come from, this language of infants? It doesn't just come from Jesus making a metaphor between little children. This whole concept of children and infants, it all comes from the Old Testament comes from Isaiah, mainly. Stay tuned for the sermon. You'll find out where. But uh, <clears throat> he says, Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Watch this. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Isn't that amazing? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that concept go to uh, is a citation from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, um, verse 25 believe, right? Verse 25. Let me make sure I got that right. Jeremiah 31, 25. No, 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 that's wrong. Jeremiah 6, 16. 6, 16. Jeremiah 6, 16. Yeah, so, so here... This is, this is hearkening back to where the Lord is promising the people rest and refreshment. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 6, 16. Stand by the way, see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So there, Jesus sees himself in the same light in which Yahweh encouraged ancient Israel to find rest for their souls by walking in the way of truth, so now Jesus is saying, I am that way. Come to me, and that's where you find that rest. Just amazing. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the, the Son except the Father. Perfect, equal knowledge between the Godhead. Um, any questions? Anything about that? Anything in your mind that challenges you about the deity of Christ that you need help with? That you're thinking about? Yes, Carlos? I'm not sure about it, you know, challenging my mind on it, but it just 
kind of popped in my head as you were reading uh, from Matthew. Yeah. He didn't mention the Holy Spirit, knowing God, Father Himself. Yeah, that's a good point, um, and um, it's because that's not the point uh, that he's making. You know, often when he always refers to the Son, he's talking about the Father. He's constantly emphasizing his relationship to the Father because he's proving that he was sent by the Father, that he came, right? Uh, he came on behalf of the Father, that he speaks for the Father. So uh, that is not the relationship that he has with the Spirit. The Spirit is actually going to proceed from the Son and the Father, but He's going to come, He's going to have a different function in the Gospels than this. Uh, Jesus certainly made e uh, uh, statements about the equality between the Father and the Spirit. That's in John chapter 14 to 16. That's where you find those statements. That Jesus is going to send another of the same kind to them, that He won't leave them orphans. He says, I myself will come to you, and then immediately He promises that the Spirit will come. So it's like the Spirit comes to represent Christ to us, to bring us the presence of Christ and those types of things. So We're out of time. Uh, let's pray and uh, we'll get going, okay? Father, <clears throat> Lord, again, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your word that's so clear. It's, it's profound, Lord, and at the same time it demands that we be good Bereans and that we study to show ourselves approved so that we would not be ashamed but rightly be able to divide the word of truth. Lord, thank you for uh, our time. Lord, bless our service. Lord, bless our day. We have an exciting day today with baptisms and, and testimonies. And Father, we're, we're just excited to see what you're going to do among us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.